This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 53. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 53 you're listening to. Welcome, welcome, my friends, my brothers and sisters in recording to another great episode. My guest today will be Mr. Daryl Thorpe, seven-time Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer, and mixer. How about that? So check this out. He got his start. I'll just kind of fast-track you through this. But basically, he ended up through uh, his climbing up the studio ladder, ended up meeting Nigel God- God- Godrich. Nigel Godrich, there we go. Shortly um, after meeting him, he became his full-time engineer. How about that? And he ended up recording Beck's Sea Change, uh, Hail to the Thief by Radiohead, uh, Paul McCartney's Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Yeah, so he's uh, he's gone on to do great things. Yeah, so he's coming up. Guys, he's, I'm just looking at his uh, people he's worked with. Outcast, Radiohead, Switchfoot, Molotov, Beck. Wow. Anyhow, uh, so Daryl Thorpe coming up. Looking forward to chatting with Daryl. So I just got back from a, a consulting gig. I was at a studio uh, down the street from my house doing, helping out with some technical issues and uh, kind of had a little encounter with a guy in a parking lot where I, he was blocking me in and it was kind of a challenging, challenging situation, but you know, no fights or anything like that, but just kind of like, basically the guy was kind of, a, kind of an asshole. <laughs> To, to put it bluntly, but, um, you know, cause I, he was blocking me in and I said, you know, uh, I'm going to be leaving soon. How long are you going to be here? And he said, Oh, I'm going to be here till five. And I said, Oh, well, you know, I'm going to be leaving. Like I said, and he said, well, you're going to have to have this other guy move. And he was very inflexible. So, um, I, uh, I told the studio owner, I was like, Hey, so, uh, is that the owner of the building? And he said, no, 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 that's my neighbor. And I said, Oh, he's a, he's kind of a special person. It really got me thinking about, neighbors, parking, all of the things that we really don't think too much about when we're setting up a studio space. You know, maybe you're driving around and you're thinking, oh, there's a cool building. We could set up a studio there. Or maybe you're on the hunt for a building. This is one of the most often overlooked things, I think. Now, in many areas, you know, if you're maybe if you're in the suburbs or I don't know, maybe if there's a parking lot, it's not a challenge. But uh, for some reason, at least in my experience, uh, parking has always been part of the equation that has to be factored in. So parking and relationships with your neighbors in, in, in regards to your studio. Many years ago in my Emeryville studio ha- had a built out place. And obviously there was a flaw in some of the construction because a, uh, a gaming uh, game sound company moved in next door and we ended up kind of butting heads over recording drums at, uh, in the middle of the day when they were trying to do voiceovers and it, you know, it just escalated to the management of the building and it just, it gets out of hand. So, you know, when you are scouting a spot, that's something to consider. Really take a look around, check out your neighbors, maybe go meet your neighbors, your potential neighbors and say, you know, Hey, you know, what do you know about the area? You know, it's a good, good way to kind of introduce yourself and say, Hey, you know, we're thinking about, you know, um, renting the space and here's what we do. Um, this is, you know, maybe you're just doing voiceovers and it's no big deal, but if your next door neighbor, as I've said in previous, uh, in a previous show, uh, is, uh, an I-beam factory, which I've actually encountered, uh, that's going to be a little noisy for you. Consequently, if you're recording 
you know, drums or bass or whatever, loud instruments, and you haven't built the space out to be, you know, soundproof, then you're going to be interrupting, maybe it's a, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a, uh, a travel agency or it's a H&R block kind of tax place. I don't know. These are things to consider. So I think I've hammered the point home. Looking for a studio space? Check out your neighbors. Check out the parking. With the parking especially, because if your clients can't park there or, uh, you know, whether it's tape, uh, you know, techs that are coming in to repair stuff, if they can't park, that's a challenge. And if bands can't load in, that's a challenge. So obviously you want to look, don't just say, oh yeah, there's street parking. You want to see if it's permit parking. You want to see if there's meters, all these things you got to consider. So that's my spiel of the day or of the episode for uh, parking and your neighbors when considering a studio. So we're, this is the holiday time, make a little transition to the holidays. Uh, there's some really good promos going on right now. Our, our friends over at Universal Audio are doing some great stuff. They have three different promos that are time sensitive because they don't run past the end of the year, to the best of my knowledge here. Number one is if you buy an Apollo, whether it's a Firewire-based Apollo or a Thunderbolt-based Apollo, you can get a satellite box uh, for free. They will send you that. So if you buy the Firewire one, they're going to send you a Firewire satellite. If you buy the Thunderbolt, you get the point. They're going to send you a Thunderbolt one. That's one promo. They're obviously doing the promo that we have listed on the Working Class Audio page, which is the buy a Universal Audio Twin, get some free plugins. Check that out if you're thinking about a twin instead of a, of a full-blown Apollo. The other thing that they're doing is uh, their store with all their plugins is selling plugins for up to 60% off. I've mentioned it before. One of my favorites, the Dynamite compressors up there for uh, $75, I think it is. It's, it's very inexpensive. So uh, make sure and check that out. Universal Audio doing some fantastic promos here at the end of the year. I hope wherever you are, you're staying warm. I tell you, it has been crazy cold where where we live here and, uh, you know, cold for California. I know for, you know, if you're in the East Coast, it's probably uh, weather that you would go and drink beers on the lawn by, but uh, not so much here. So, all right, that's about it. Let's jump into the interview here with Daryl Thorpe here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hello, hello. Hey, man. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. So, welcome to the podcast, Daryl. It's it's thanks great, for having me, Matt. Great to have you on. Apparently, we've met, but I don't remember. Well, we met like in passing. Just in passing. You know, hey, I'm Matt, and you know, I, it was probably in a group of people, and probably. You know, and I think you were probably fairly new to potluck that year. I was. That was my only. I was a virgin. Yeah. So it, you were you were kind of new, and I think you were being inundated because. You were like the new guy with the Radiohead credit that everybody was like, oh, a new guy. Let's talk to the new guy. <laughs> and so I think you were getting kind of inundated with people. Let's um, harass him. Your story is interesting. I was reading online and I watched an interview with you and you you actually, you were in the Navy for four years. Correct. Yeah. Your time in the Navy, was there any uh, technical training that you received that later served you in the recording world? You know, that my time in the Navy was sort of like boot camp for uh, sessions. And uh, when I started in the 90s, we were still working. An 18-hour day was a slow day. And, and an eight-day week was a slow week, especially working at studios. People were still spending money left and right recording every piece of crap that walked through the studio. 
Literally. I worked on so many records that never came out, never saw the light of day just because of, I don't know, people just were like, oh, that was the thing to do. We spend money on just, just garbage. So standing watch all the time, just getting used to not being able to sleep, working really weird, odd hours. I was an operation specialist, which is radar, navigation, communication. And we were a lot of backup systems for other systems on the ship. That was kind of our job. But our main job was radar. And we'd work from seven in the morning till about 11. Then you'd get off. Somebody would take your place. You'd go eat. And then you'd be off from one to five and you go back from six to midnight. So you'd, you, they basically call it port and starboard and you kind of be like six on, six on. It was really five on, seven on, five on, five off, seven on, seven off. And then on top of that would be any kind of drills or training. So if it was your turn to sleep, you'd still have to be up for the drills and things like that. It was just brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. And I was like, so in a weird way, it really prepared me when I was as an assistant engineer working in studios and being at the studio at 9 a.m. And then the session would go till one. Then I have to tear down and then set up for the next session and then be back the next morning at 9 a.m. for a different session. It was kind of, I kind of got acclimated to that jacked up schedule. I would imagine that the Navy is a bit bit more of a grind than than the studio life. Uh, you or know, would... To be honest, it, feel, it felt kind of the same. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was just my work ethic. I feel like I've always had a good work ethic. Speaking of work ethic, you did uh, an internship at Oceanway. Is that correct? My internship was at Track Record mm. in the Valley, which still exists, but it's under new owners now. Uh, Paramount owns it now. And then I went to Conway. Mm. And then from Conway, I went to Oceanway. Uh, all just as a staff assistant engineer. What did that pay then at the height of, of being a, a, a staff person? I was making 15 an hour at Ocean Way. But Late was, 90s? Yeah, but there was overtime. Wow. Yeah. What a concept, right? Overtime. Was there a 401k plan? I think we could get into a 401k plan if we wanted to, but I, I, but I had sick pay and health insurance, medical insurance, dental insurance. We had vacation time. I think we had a week of vacation time and maybe five days of sick time. And then um, Ocean Way was kind of cool too because they'd pay us a retainer if we weren't working. I think they learned a long time ago that they had to start paying their staff assistants and retainers to, you could pretty much, if you had nothing booked uh, on it, if you had no sessions booked that week, you could just tell the assistant or tell the manager like, hey, I'm around next week. I'm not doing any side projects. And you could sort of count on some cash Damn. Just to sit around and be on call. Um, I think it bit them in the butt back in the the heyday of Oceanway when they were running seven, eight rooms at a time and assistants were going off on there and like, oh, I can't come in. I'm on a gig, you know. So they were like, oh, let's, we need to start a retainer thing. So we at least have an assistant in our back pocket if if something cancels, if another assistant gets sick or. Wow. What a concept. What a concept. So that was good, you know, as far as my last run being uh, uh, an employed person, an employed what, engineer. What year were you at Oceanway? I started at Oceanway in 2000 and then I went independent in 2003, okay. like spring of 2003. Yeah. Okay. I started in the music business in 97. Uh-huh. I, I, I was in the Navy from 93 and I got out in January of 97. I got out a little early. I, they, I asked to let them let me out. And they said, yeah, mm-hmm. sure. So huh. I don't know about the other branches of services, but the Navy, especially, they're huge on education. So if anybody says, 
I need time off or I need to adjust my schedule or my work hours to go to school, they're like, go for it. It's wow. yeah. Anything else is like, nope, screw you. Get to work. I've heard that in if you're going to join the armed forces in the United States, the Navy is the way to go. Is what I uh, Navy or Air Force? Mm. Uh, the old joke is um, the Navy guy is looking at on the beach where there's a set of Marines and a set of Army, and the he's the Navy guy looks at the beach and go, "Gosh, it must suck there." And then the the caption is to the Army, oh, "God, it sucks here." And then the next caption is the Marines. God, I love how much it sucks here. <laughs> and then the last is the Air Force. What? No cable? This sucks. You know, they're going to their barracks. I'm curious about your transition from being in the Navy into the recording world. It's the same. You just, you cuss, you get to cuss a lot. You work weird hours. The only thing is you don't have to stand inspection. Nobody's telling you to make your bed. And Like if people bringing you on, do they say, do they treat you any differently? Do they... Coming from that world, do they, do they, did you notice any difference of any treatment? The most amazing thing about my military service was that I, when I'd sit down for any kind of interview, if I'd have a resume in front of me, or excuse me, in front of them, or, or they would just go, so what's your deal? I would just say, well, grew up in Tucson, graduated from high school, kind of messed around in Tucson for a couple of years, and then I decided to join the Navy. And they would go, what, 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 wait, wait, you were in the Navy? And then the whole like professional zipped up tie thing goes out the window. People would just like listen up the tie, but so dude, what was that like? <laughs> like? Wow. And it was the biggest icebreaker in the room as far as talking to somebody that I'm trying to be professional with in order to get employment. The same held true with uh, getting a gig sometimes with different studios. To me, like being an engineer, I think it's more about, do you really want to spend 16 hours a day hanging out with this person? Is this the person you want to spend hanging? It's more about the vibe than it is about their talent. Uh-huh. And in some cases, you can definitely see that's true. Yeah. Well, I wonder if they ever would look at you and think, well, th I mean, this guy spent all his time on, on a boat with other people. He obviously has learned the art of the hang because you got to like... You got to adapt. Yeah, you got to adapt. And that was the hardest part about being on a, sh on a ship for me is you, you just have no privacy and you can't go anywhere and it was just like escape and be just sort of zenned out. There's just too many people. You're on top of each other. There's no place to go and be alone on a boat for the most part. Mm -hmm. It may be a little different now, but when I was in, you have three cubic feet of personal space, including where you sleep and to store all your crap. So damn. Yeah. So three cubic, and it's even worse on a submarine. It's like a foot and a half, a 1.5 cubic feet on a submarine. <laughs> oh, geez. Right. Ugh. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So people would look at that and, and start to ask you questions because that's for, for many people in the music industry, I'm going to take a wild guess and say, I don't think a lot of people in the music industry have military experience. Oh no. So you're kind of a little bit of a, an anomaly and kind of like a, a point of fascination, like, oh, I don't know about that. Tell me about that. I've only met one other dude and he trumped me. He trumped my story. He was in the Marines. His name is Will. And I'm I'm so sorry, Will, if you listen to this, you're going to be like, you asshole, because I can't remember his last name. He was a <laughs> staff engineer assistant over at East West, the nicest guy. Well, uh, Will was in the Marines and he did maybe one, one for sure, but might've only been one tour in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And he was wounded. 
uh, some shrapnel went off and went into his leg. I think it hurt him pretty bad. I mean, he kind of still limps around a little bit, but he, and he said he has, he says he's got kind of chronic pain from this injury, but you know, but so he was shot, so to speak. So I, I say, well, I was in the Navy and he goes, well, I was in the Marines and I was wounded. You know, I got a pulver heart and it's like, okay, you know, whoa. Yeah. Kind of trumped me there, dude, but whatever. All right, fine. <laughs> I wasn't wounded. <laughs> I would imagine that discipline in the military does something to you in your civilian life that really can positively affect you. Actually, it was an interview I saw online. You talked about putting your nose to the grindstone and really learning, really focusing. And I, I can only imagine that a little bit of that, you know, is inherent in who you are, but a, a certain amount of that definitely probably came from your military training. Would, would you agree? I think some of it came from the military. Uh, I also think some of it, a lot of it was just, I mean, Matt, at the time when I started in the business as an assistant, I was just hungry. I wanted to learn everything that I possibly could. There were times I burned myself out just from the grind of it all, but I was very intrigued by every concept and every possibility. I'm a little, it's weird now because I, I say that and I hear those words coming out of my mouth and I'm kind of like, man, am I just lazy now? Or is it just because I, I feel like I've figured out what works for me and what doesn't work for me? And it's a taste thing more than anything. And that's why I'm not really too hip on, hey, let's try this out. And I'm like, eh, that's not. <laughs> I don't know. That kind of bums me out when I say that because I'm not as eager to uh, people or clients will just, eh, let's try this out. Mm-hmm. Let's not. I do that, I would say, maybe once a session. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, I mean, cause sometimes, I mean, let's face it, you're in, you're in a session with, uh, people that they don't get to record all the time. Yes. So when they go to record, it's like, oh my God, this is the best like, thing ever. It's like going to Disneyland it's, and you've ridden all the rides a million times over. And then they say, oh my God, let's do space mountain. And you're like, eh. It's going to Disneyland, but there's two pounds of cocaine <laughs> on top of it, you know? So you have to reel them in a little bit. It's like restart their heart a little bit, I guess. Yeah. In that situation where a band is recording for the first time in a while and they're amped up and they're excited, I sort of, I try to reel it in a little bit and be like, you know, guys, don't wear yourself out. By day three, this is not a sprint. This is a slow, this is a 10K run. You got to pace yourselves. No, 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 no. And everybody gets worn out by day two and then you're not productive anymore. Especially with the case of uh, you've been you've been at it since 10 a.m. You know, setting up. You probably started recording at noon, and it's already 10 o'clock at night. Let's do another song. No, let's go home. <laughs> let's all go home, get a good night's sleep, come in rested, and tomorrow, and we'll start at it again. You know, because I've been there where I'm. Let's do another song at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Yeah, sure, and then. Sure enough, the next morning comes around and you're just exhausted and you can't, it takes you forever to get going again. And how do you kind of temper that without putting a damper on creativity and making them go, oh man, Daryl, you're being a bummer? Well, I've, I've, I've definitely vibe killed a couple of bands in my career (laughs) just by, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's an easy way to say it except for we just have to, we have three days. Let's use the time efficiently and wisely 
to get what we come in here accomplished. And if by chance we get extra done within the three days, then we can jerk off and experiment. But most of the times that does not happen, especially with everybody's budget. You know, they say, well, I've only got this amount of dollars to get so much stuff done in three days. It's the producer's job. So it depends on what's going on. Usually these situations come up when I'm producing something. I'm a little bit more open about saying, okay, it's 10 o'clock. We've got a lot of stuff done. Let's call it for the night. A friend of mine that I work with, who's Dave Cobb, who's up for producer of the year and several records this year, Grammy nominations. He, he kind of works from one o'clock to nine o'clock. And it seems to be like a good eight hour dinner break in the middle there. So we're really rat, but we're at it for seven solid hours. We're at it. We're, we're cranking it. Hmm. And it seems to be a good space. And it seems to be always a really good space for the musicians because it's not super early for them. Mm-hmm. He, is up early anyways with his daughter, but then he usually has a million phone calls to make before the session starts. And we're not working till 10, 11 o'clock at night. So we're actually ending at a decent, really reasonable hour for him to still go home, to have some downtime and go to bed before. I mean, it's still, it's still a long, busy day. Don't get me wrong, but he seems to definitely, without saying anything to the band, this is the schedule. He never really says, so this is what we're going to work. He's, it just sort of happens somehow. And I've, hmm. I've always scratched my head about that. Like, how does he, you have a dog in your room, by the way. I, uh, oh, you, did he just walk in? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't realize you could see. Yeah, that's, that's the 75, almost 80 pound bulldog, actually. 80 pound bulldog? Yeah. yeah. And, and not from overfeeding. He's just, he's just, just big boned. He's just a big guy. Wow. Yeah, getting him in the back of the car is a bitch, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, hopefully he won't snore during our chat here, but th- th- it's interesting as far as, you know, that magic uh, formula of when to start, when to end a session, depending on your role, engineer, or producer. Right. And of course, you experienced a little bit of this when I was like, hey, you want to start at 9? Because I'm up at 6.30. Well, you know, it, uh, I apologize for me, Matt. My problem is um, 9 is difficult for me because uh, I live in Torrance and my studio's in Beverly Hills. So mm. for me to start at 9 is just I sit in traffic for an hour Yeah. versus getting here at a reasonable hour, you know, 11, and it's only 30 minutes up the road. No, no, no. That, that was no big deal, but... I always run into it with bands are like, well, what time do you want us at the studio? I'm like, nine, nine, <laughs> ten. <laughs> and they're like, uh, uh, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, I- I'll get there at like eight. And I'm like, okay, I've had like 30 cups of coffee. I'm ready to go. But a really good friend of mine, uh, he's an engineer and I'll, I'll name drop his Chris Stefan. He came up with a comment years ago. Well, you know, Meet the Beatles was made at nine in the morning and the White Album was made at midnight. Interesting. <laughs> You know, it's genius. So when people, yeah. you know, I understand it's everybody's schedule, but when people like, especially jazz musicians, you know, they always would say, what time do you want to start? Oh, 9 a.m. Oh, so we're doing Meet the Beatles. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Cool. Up here in the Bay Area, you know, we d- obviously we have a different ecosystem than, than Los Angeles. So a lot of musicians work. A lot of musicians already have day jobs. They have day so jobs. They're, they're kind of already used to a nine to five schedule. <laughs> So they're they're up anyways. Many, yeah. I mean, they're burning the candle at both ends with gigs at night and day jobs in in many situations. I find Nashville. I've I've worked a lot in Nashville this year. Nashville's kind of amazing. They they have it they have it right. I like their schedule. I wish. <sighs> 
man, I just wish the whole, everybody would just be like, okay, LA sucks. Let's get out of here. Everybody in Nashville, let's go. Come on. Because they work, they start setting up around nine and they start recording at 10. Then they take a break at one, like it's a union break because it's in their, and then their union laws. So they work from 10 to one. They take a break, like a little break. They just, hey, you know, you want to go, hey, you know, I'm I'm not feeling the barbecue. I'm going to go get a salad. It was So they just take a break from one o'clock to two o'clock. They're back at two and then they work at till uh, seven or six, six, seven o'clock. So they're usually done by 637. Wow. They just don't work past seven o'clock. And you know something, they kick ass. Yeah, they are. They are robots. It's crazy. They are robots. There is something to be said about the fact that how they work is a little bit more rigid and gridded in some weird way. And then, you know, a lot of sessions that I work with or work on are a little bit more experimental and a little free, which there's, there's, there's ups and downs to both. A little bit, bit of a difference culturally between Tennessee and California. Correct. But as far as their work hours, I'm always like, oh, dude, that would be amazing. Oh, wouldn't it be? Yes. I really prefer mixing just because it's the freedom of setting my schedule. Uh, but I do like recording as well because it keeps me keeps me on my toes, so to speak. I find if I'm just mixing all the time, I sort of just get into like a little bit of an audio rut. Oh, yeah. Then it's like, oh, this breaks up the monotony. But when the tracking session happens, I'm like, I'm at the mercy of my client schedule. I, I kind of have to be convenient to them. After all, they are paying me. So it's kind of like that thing. And mm-hmm. there's within reason, but it's 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 just like, well, I, I can't really say, oh, I'm going to knock off at seven o'clock. That's not reality. Just kind of tracing back a little bit. Was there like a clear cut point at which you started to get a lot more attention? And would that would I be accurate in saying that that attention started to come when you started to uh, meet up with uh, Nigel Godrich? Yeah, N- Nigel was a big turning point in my career. I learned a lot from Nigel. Like what? What did you learn? The The biggest thing for me, I started in 97 and I worked for, I was a staff assistant for about three years and then I met Nigel. And then mind you, in these three years, I worked with a range of engineers, a range of producers and some engineers who I thought were were really good. And some were just me. It's so hard to say because someone I'm sitting in the back of the room going, who did you blow to get this job? Like you suck, you know, still they had the gig and that's fine. But it was always this Americanized mentality of how you 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 would just stick a microphone on an instrument and then you'd run in the control room and then you'd very tentatively go over and you click the EQ in and you'd add 2 dB at 10K. That's done. That's perfect. And meanwhile, it just... Especially, those were tape. That was tape, not Pro Tools. I mean, Pro Tools is a bit more forgiving in the sense that you can EQ the crap out of it later on in the post-in and you're not, kind of, you're not really manipulating the noise floor. I mean, you are, but not necessarily the, the same amounts as like tape. As mm-hmm. soon as you start EQing tape on the post-in, you're just adding noise, more noise to the, to the platform. So it was, that was really bizarre to me. Nigel was just, he would just go over there and just start getting his hands dirty. Just digging in, compressing a lot to tape, EQing uh, ungodly amounts to tape. But then when it, you played it back, it sounded amazing. 
It sounded finished. It sounded alive. With him and with Beck, as far as morning phase, Beck just wanted it sent. Beck wanted it sounded. He just wanted it done as we were recording to the point to where sometimes I was like, "Uh, I think we're going a little too crazy here. And he was like, nope, keep going. Okay. You're the producer. So Um, as far as just adding EQ and things of that nature uh, and compression. uh, But I guess it says something because we got a couple Grammys for it. So, (laughs) you know, maybe that that does say something. I mean, at least somebody likes it there. Yeah, At least somebody likes it. That was my biggest thing with Nigel, just learning how to just just commit, man. It was always that mentality of sort of not committing to things, especially sounds, always just sort of getting the most generic kind of bland sounds. And that was sort of the norm. And then somebody else later on in post, i.e. the mix engineer, could then manipulate it everywhere, which way he wants. But in reality, I'm always like, well... Aren't you, I mean, aren't you really capturing the sound of a band anyways? Like if you're working for, a, if you're recording a band, you're recording a band and they have their own unique sound print, or should I say footprint already? Right. So why not make that footprint as best as you can possibly capture it at that moment in time? So what do you mean by that? Are you, are you talking like from a neutral position or enhanced position? I'm talking about an enhanced position. Okay, okay. It doesn't necessarily have to be finished. I'm just saying go for a goal and get it to where it sounds close to being done, mm-hmm. in your opinion. Uh, close to being done is 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 vaguely different, or excuse me, variably different from everybody's opinion. I may think something needs to be mixed and somebody else may think, no, 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 it's perfect, don't touch it. Whereas... That's just a taste thing. Mm -hmm. Because of the way they write, they're going to sound different than the last band that you had in there, even though you're sort of using the same layout or the same miking technique to capture band A versus band B. Because they're a different band and they play in different keys, they have different instruments, they tonally, their touch feels different. Like everything, all those little things make up something that sounds unique to that band. Yeah. I'm always trying to capture that more on the in, on the instance that it goes down rather than trying to manipulate it into something later on post. Well, whenever you watch those, um, the classic album series, mm-hmm. or, you know, where it's like uh, Graceland and Number of the Beast and, you know, like all these different bands. And whenever they pull up tracks, it's always like, you know, it's obviously somebody transferred the two-inch tapes to, or whatever... To, analog, to to Pro, Pro Tools, Tools and somebody's there as like an archive, you know, yeah, and they're they're sitting there pulling it up, and every time they they do those, I'm like, well, I mean, that just sounds like the record right there, I mean, right? Individualized elements of the record, but it sounds like the record, and it's, I would say, especially in the case of Queen, oh gosh, I'm, you know, I, I mean, the shit just they push it up, it's like, oh, the, there it is. That was that was like those records to me. That's that's engineering. I did a cover of Killer Queen with Travis, the band Travis, mm-hmm. f- when back in the day when you had to do B-sides for singles. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned so much about that process. Like, talk about something that you're working at a goal to f- for a finished product. Because, you know, because they had that early commitment mentality is how I, what I walk away from listening all to all that stuff. Because they only had so many tracks. It, and they had to, like, you know, you know, sometimes imprint reverb right on the Correct. track. Really? Well, so let's talk a little bit about your mixing in the box thing. Okay. As I always like to point out, because I'm a big mixing in the box fan myself. 
I've gone through all the different permutations, summing boxes, mixing on a board, all of that stuff. And, you know, I just keep coming back to in-the-box mixes for a number of reasons. For budgetary reasons yep. is one. And number two, I like how it sounds, and which I think should be important. And It works. And the recall is just like, oh, very, very uh, refreshing. Yeah. So I've got friends that are on consoles still. I'm like, dude. You kidding me? <laughs> uh, well, point being, I, I'm I'm a, today after our interview, I have to go recall a song that I mixed two months ago. How the hell am I supposed to recall that on a console? Uh, oh, but you're recalling it in a DAW. Yes, okay. that that's just the mentality of most clientele. Luckily for me, today they are correct with the recall. But if I was on a console, ugh, uh, or any kind drag. of you know any kind of like summing. Before I really just committed to the whole just mixing in the box DAW thing, I did summing amplifiers and external, you know, I, I still had issues with like, oh, this, it, the vocal doesn't sound the same. Great. Why not? What's going on? What's going on? And let me spend my precious time trying to figure out why it doesn't sound the same. Did the 1176 die? Is the, pre, you know, I mean, it's not that difficult to troubleshoot. My point is being, it's just time is money. Money is time, so to speak. Yeah. It bums me out when I recall something and it doesn't sound the same. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. All right, Daryl Thorpe here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great interview so far. Let's take a little bit of a break and just talk about Audio-Technica and their promos that are running till the end of the year. Remember, if you are going to buy a 40 series microphone, do not forget to register it so you can get that free pair of ATH-M50X headphones that they are giving away. Free is good, my friends. Free is good. The banner, of course, is on the Working Class Audio site. It's on the right-hand side, which I always say. And uh, click on that. That'll tell you about the mics that are available there for you. There's uh, uh, some ribbons. There's some condensers, tube and non-tube condensers. So um, make sure and check that out. And if you are seriously thinking about it and you're like, well, I can't make a decision until I hear it and kind of running out of time here because the end of the year is coming up, make sure to go over to the bonus content on the Working Class Audio site and you'll see a little drop-down menu and you can click on that. And there you can hear the samples that Nino Michella, James Meter, and Cole Williams and I made over at Bird and Egg Studios. Maybe that'll help you make a more informed choice about the mic that you're going to choose and what you're going to use it on. So I hope that helps you out. That's about it. Just want to make sure and mention that. Do not forget to register your mic if you have purchased it already and you want to get those headphones. And uh, that's about it. All right, let's jump back into the interview with Mr. Daryl Thorpe here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You have a studio behind you. Uh, unfortunately, the audience can't see that. But uh, tell me a bit about that. Tell me a bit about First of all, like, is this a place you rent? Yeah, it's um, it's the studio. It's really my partner's studio. He's got his room and I have a room because oh. it's great. You know, there's no checking in with schedule. It's just, oh, I got to I gotta do a recall. I got to do a mix. I got to do whatever I want. And is it mainly a mix room? It is mainly, it's a mix room. So if uh, somebody calls you up and says, hey, can we do a vocal overdub? Could you do it there? Would you do it there? Uh, I can use my partner's room. He has an ISO. And but mine that's really rare. I've always been in this this interesting position where my clientele they have studios or they have a budget to rent a studio. 
I've, I very rarely have an issue of like, oh, we want to hire you, but we don't have a place to record at and we can't afford anything. I've just gotten very, I guess, lucky or fortunate in that situation. Well, then as far as mixing is concerned, if you're doing a major project, does any does anybody in your ecosystem there ever say, oh, you're mixing it in the box? How come you're not going to, you know, mix it on a console and rent this studio? And The majority of people never ask. And some people don't ask me. And then I start working and then they go, dude, you're in a console, right? I'm like, no. What? Summon amplifier? No. Any external outboard gear? No. You're in the box. Yes. Okay. Uh, is this after they've heard it? Yeah. I've had a couple of clients. They just, they assume I'm on a console or something and then they find out I'm in the box. I had a, a client, uh, this guy calls me up and he says, so, hey man, I, I, I know we've never worked together. I, I want to hire you to mix some stuff, but I really want you to mix it on a board through outboard gear. And I said, well, why is that? He goes, well, I just, you know, I really want that warmth and blah, blah, blah. And you know, all the typical that sound. Uh, that catchphrases <laughs> that people use. And I said, I tell you what, man, let me mix a song in the box. And if you don't like it, and you want me to mix it on a console, we'll figure that out. But let me just give it a try and let you hear it. And he heard it and he was like, oh, sold. Totally. Done. Sounds great. Sweet. I was like, okay, good. Done. I, don't, I, I don't have to go and navigate that that jungle. <laughs> <laughs> don't get me wrong. See, my, my thing of it is, is after I, I'm not bashing mixing on a console, but I do miss the console format as an engineer, as I, I'm sure you do as well in some suits, in such a way. The, the, the ergonomics of a mouse and a keyboard while mixing is just a little, it's slower or I'm not sure. It's just, you can't, it's, there's no tangible thing to touch. There's, and it forces you to work a little bit differently because you have to, you are so dependent upon you, the screen, mm -hmm. you have to look at what you're doing in order to make an EQ adjustment or a compression adjustment. It's just the way the beast is. And I've tried a couple control surfaces and they're just not good enough. Personally, mm -hmm. maybe I should get somebody involved in making the ultimate controller. I've on permanent loan back here. I've got a, a, t a slate, uh, a Raven. How do you like it? It's, it's definitely a change of habit. I've always had uh, a little command eight mm -hmm. control surface that I've had of all the digital purchases I've made, I've had that probably the longest. Okay. So transitioning from that has been a challenge. And uh, Challenge also, in a good way, you think? Or do you, do you see the end result? Or are you kind of like, eh, fuck this thing? Not bashing on the surface, by the way. I no, 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 no. I love no, no. guys. Yeah, you know, and I, I like Steven. As far as this surface is concerned, it's, it's such a habit-changing thing to go, oh, I, I can touch this. Oh. Mm-hmm that I'm having to think about it. And so the transition has been a little bit of a challenge, but I'm also in midstream of changing computers from an old tower mm. with running Pro Tools to a new laptop running Studio One from Presonus. I still have Pro Tools on this laptop, but... You're just using Studio One. I'm mixing in Studio One now, yeah. Wow. It's, and then I went back to... I had to go open up a mix in Pro Tools the other day, and I've been using Studio One now for a few months, and I was like, oh, shit. Oh, I can't do all the things I can do in Studio One. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I was introduced to the Personas people and they gave me a, like a demo copy of it. And the, the problem is, is I, I, Pro Tools is a dominated world in our industry. And just mm -hmm. the, the, the concept of trying to switch DAWs from one 
DAW so I could work exclusively in another DAW was just a big daunting challenge to me just to, to open up so many cans of worms. So I was it was just, a daunting challenge. Yeah, daunting challenge. Teen the concept of it is like, dude, this is amazing. I really like it. It's just when you get 98% of your projects on Pro Tools. Right. Obviously, I think you're working a hell of a lot more and you changing horse midstream is a little challenging. Very challenging for me. Yeah. I mean, when, when the work is coming, I mean, shit. And I mean, your profile is way higher than mine. So, I mean, you kind of have a, a, you have to protect that reputation and you don't want people to be like, oh yeah, I tried to work with Daryl, but then he was like, you know, <laughs> changing and upgrading and trying to get a grip on a new system. And then the record came out like shit and that wouldn't work. I had a, an artist a long time ago, he he hated the technology factor because I guess the previous person he worked with was uh, technology. Always, we got to try the new thing. It's amazing. And and actually, it was always the new thing was just a big pain in the ass. And it was like, why are we doing this? Why can't you just use Pro Tools? It works. Yeah. And, and that was kind of an interesting concept from an art, artistic standpoint. Like, why, why are you, I would never want to put a client through a guinea pig experiment. Yeah. Hey, dude, you're paying me a lot of money to record your record, but can I use you as my guinea pig? I'm going to upgrade my operating system <laughs> right now. It'll just take 20 minutes. It'll take 20 minutes. But I got to be on El Capitan. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make everything so much better. It's a free update, right? <laughs> dude, something must be good. Yeah, everybody I talk to is just having... El Capitan issues. I'm like, really? Oh, thank why, God. Why, why don't you just stay behind? What? I mean, I have an old tower, which is great because I have, I literally right now I have, no, I only have one SSD in there, but I've got it partitioned off. So one is, uh, is running lion, mountain lion mm -hmm. or was it? No, snow lion, snow kitty, snow leopard. Was it snow leopard? Yeah. Snow leopard. Mount, lion, mountain lion. Mountain lion. I'm running mountain lion, mountain kitty. Uh-huh. As an older backup with older versions of plugins on there. And then I partitioned it off because I really don't need that much space on my operating system. And then I partitioned it off and now I'm running Mavericks with 12. Uh-huh. But I would really like to go Yosemite 12. Okay. I'm doing Yosemite and 12.3 on this laptop here. So. Oh, but see your studio one. So you well, I, I have both. But I speak I, I speak both languages. Right, I know you speak both languages, but interesting enough. But you is it still not safe for you it being the Studio One guy? Or are you worried about the Pro Tools compatibilities? Uh, with, with regards to being El Capitan. Oh, I just don't trust Apple. <laughs> oh, you don't trust Apple? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not really. You know, I, I tend to hang back because well, when it comes to operating yeah. systems, like. The minute I start to see chatter about, oh, I upgraded to El Capitan and now I can't open this. I'm like, oh, fuck that. Yeah, I'm I, I never understood why was he, I, I feel like I'm always two years behind the times. Operating system. Oh, and I think that's the way to be. Well, now I'm more. Even though I want to go Yosemite, I just haven't taken the time to upgrade yet, I guess you could yeah. say. And uh -huh. then hope that, f fingers crossed that it all works. Because I, I need to run a backup first before I do it. Yeah, I like your idea there of, of having the, the partitions with the different OSs. And I do it on my laptop as well. That's a great idea. I have, because I'm on, I'm El Capitan for my personal life. Email, invoicing, all that stuff. And then I have a partition still on this this computer 
where it's like, oh, well, you know, if I need to do a gig on my laptop, Thunderbolt, whatever it is, you know, I can just boot up into Yosemite or not, um, and uh, Maverick's really easy. Mm-hmm. Do you invest much in gear? Not gear per se. I do more, lately I've done more software upgrades than anything, uh, plugins. Because it's like, it seems like a common, it's almost like a caricature, really. The Los Angeles engineers, it seems like for many years, it's like you'd always see their picture and there'd be their racks of eight, you know, gear <laughs> and their ATA racks <laughs> behind them. Yep. You know, that their the cartage companies would tote around mm-hmm. and they would collect all this stuff. Yep. Is that you? No. Do I like gear. I love gear. I love pieces, certain things. It just when you work in a world of being in the box for functionality and mm-hmm. speed and the likelihood of my favorite compact 760 or ADR 760 that I use on drum parallel compression all the time, dying in the middle of mid-mix is far greater than the likelihood of the Fatso Senior or Fatso Junior plugin, UAD plugin that I'm using in the box. That's not really going to die on me for a yeah. recall. You know, and that's an extreme that's a total extreme version of it because the majority of the gear that I do own, man, it just, it sits around. And then once in a while I get a tracking session where I'm like, oh, I could use this and this and this and I'll break it out and I'll just drag it to the studio and use it for a couple of days. And then mm-hmm. that's, that's usually it. Not necessarily all the case. I mean, sometimes I'll pull something out and just use it and record it, record it back in because I'm looking for a different, a particular tonality. Do you have... um I always ask this, these types of questions on, to, to the guests, but an economic policy with yourself with regard to your gear. You know, some people just, they just go into debt. They just, pop, you know, oh, I'm going to buy more, more gear. Uh, no, I don't. My wife and I discuss, she, she knows just as much what's going on financially with me and uh, the business side of, of income. So for the most part, I only buy stuff if I really need it. If it's just something I, I got to have for a particular project. And, and, you know, I'll usually go to my wife and just be like, oh, I got to get this for, uh, buy it. Okay, that's fine. And that I guess that keeps me out of trouble too. Unless it's the, the, the end of the year taxes where you, you do the numbers and your accountant's like, you know, dude, you need to spend a little money. Okay, well, here we go. Um, what do I need? What do I need? Yeah, then I, well, I always have a list of what do I need. <laughs> you know, what do I need and what do I want? A new trash can Mac Pro sounds... So much fun. And now shifting subjects drastically here on you. Management. Management. You, you have a manager, Yes, right? you do. At what point did you get a manager and why? I had a manager for uh, a previous manager for a while. And he took me on more as like, because he wanted to, to help me in the production world more. And so we sort of had this agreement where he was helping with me with production type stuff, but not really involved in the engineering part unless I wanted to bring him in on something. Um, and it was kind of this weird situation of where he, he was always there, but a lot of clientele would pretty much just call me up and go, Daryl, we love your work and we want to work with you. And we got a project and it's a 10 song record to mix, but we only have X. Are, is that okay? And then from there I would just go, well, 
it's a little low or, or that sounds good, you know, and I would just sort of just negotiate certain issue things in there to make it more worth my while. Or I would say if it was a lower rate, I would just be like, well, I can sort of just, I can do it in five days. And then you get one day of recalls or something. Like I would just put, sort of put terms on it to where it would, it would be worth it for me to do the job. And so it was never really a point of bringing him in. Late last year and sort of the beginning of this year, and especially after the morning phase, the successfulness of morning phase coming out, things started changing and I switched managers. And I'm with Andrew Brightman, had several meetings with him about it and just everything he was telling me, the way he wanted to work and the way he wanted to do, it seemed like a great fit. He's been really good at negotiating for me payment as well as, as ensuring that I get paid quickly for projects. Oh. which has been amazing. I'm I'm still harassing projects that I did pre-Andrew on my own. I'm still harassing them for payment or final payment. Like it's just, I mean, Matt, you know how it is. It's just like, it's, oh. it's nuts. It's crazy. Well, it's so different, I think, for, for someone in, in my position because I'm dealing with a lot of unknown artists who are funding themselves. So typically the checks are written on the spot. I wasn't smart enough to make that demand. <laughs> or at least make a demand of half up front and half when I finish. Yeah. So that's something I do now when I make. Which um, is fair, I think. Half and half, yeah. Yeah, totally fair. You know, that way you feel like you're the the client is uh safe. You're not gonna just take their money and run off into the woods. I think also from the um from the engineer perspective, like with regards to mixing, it's like, okay, I've been paid some money. Okay, I need to get the, I need to do this job, and in order to get the rest of the money, I need to finish the job. Correct. So there's incentive there. I agree. And, and trust on on the uh, on the uh, part of the uh, client. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think that's a great way to go. Uh, do you deal with a lot of label? Um, very artists. Funny enough, very little. Oh. Very little. Okay, maybe not labels, but maybe some type of middle middleman, you know, like a manager. Management, yes. Still, a lot of artists that I work for are signed to labels, but however, I, I feel I always get paid by the artist's production companies or management companies. They must turn around and build a label oh, yeah. at, at the at the end of the project or or something like that. I feel like that happens a lot, which is great for me because I can get I get a rep uh, a relationship with them. You know, it's just like, hey Jane, I got an invoice. Uh, I was working over last week. Okay, Daryl, great. You know, why don't you send it over and I'll, I'll probably cut the check in a couple days next week, like middle of next week. Okay, thanks. And if there's an issue, I just pick up the phone. Jane, I didn't get that check. Oh, you should have it by tomorrow morning. Call me if you don't have it. Like it's that kind of personal. It's totally, and when you work for a label, it's like, oh, we don't pay until 45 days of receiving the invoice. Like 45 fucking days. Are you fucking kidding me? Like who fucking goes to Ralph's and says, I need groceries, but you know, I'm going to pay you in 45 fucking days once you put that, that, that bill in my hand. Right. Like, uh, yeah. That's just uh, preposterous. And it's the only industry that does that. And it's the only industry that gets away with doing that. Like, uh, t TV and film, the, the few gigs that I do for TV film production, I, I day one, I'd start the gig and then somebody would call me and like, hi, this is Daryl. Hi, Daryl. This is uh, so-and-so from accounting. I need your invoice. 
you need my invoice. We just started. It's a 10-day project. I need your invoice right now. So, I mean, they're getting, they're kind of getting pissy that I don't, I haven't submitted my invoice to them yet. Whoa. Uh, okay. Uh, I'll hang up the phone and write out an invoice right now, lady. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> That's that's a good problem to have to have to have her riding your ass yeah. about the invoice, and then one one final question with regards to uh, your mixing when you work with somebody because mixing can be very different from uh, the, the the financial arrangements can be very different. Do you tend to charge by the song or by the day, and what works best for you with the client? Depends on the client. The majority of the stuff I do is by the song or or it's a all-in number for X amount of songs. If it's just somebody calling up and just saying, you know, I need three songs mixed, then, then it's usually just by the song, Okay, generally speaking. There's been times when I know certain things are going to be a slow process. I just kind of have that feeling or I've heard from other friends who have worked with a client in the past, like they move slow, then, okay, then I might be more inclined to charge by the day. The longest I've done is I spent five days on one song. And if you had charged just one rate for that song, oh my God. Yeah. Below <laughs> minimum wage. Is that, is that called for a dude or a like? like? <laughs> wow. Uh, Thanks, man. I really appreciate Matt, my you coming pleasure. on. Very um, nice to uh, uh, meet you again. Are you going to be at NAM? Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll see you there. Okay. Awesome. All right, dude. Take care. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. Daryl Thorpe on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I tell you, doing these interviews is very satisfying for me, and I hope you hearing them is very satisfying for you because... There's so much to learn, so many little nuggets of wisdom. And, you know, I hope uh, you might you might consider actually going back and re-listening, which I'm actually going to start doing because I tell you, I've done so many of these that I'm starting to forget what some of the people have said. And there's, I tell you, we're starting to pile up some some really good quotes here. That's about it. I hope uh, I hope business is, is, is good for all of you out there. Or uh, if you're thinking about opening a studio, make sure that... Uh, you follow my earlier mentions of uh, parking and neighborly relations and make sure that that's all sorted out. But uh, yeah, just uh, want to wish all of you uh, a happy holiday time, uh, no matter where you are and what you're doing. And uh, stay safe out there. Watch that weather. I tell you, I'm going I'm going to be going to Michigan in that uh, that snow. I tell you, that snow just kills me. Oh, God, I hate snow. I really do. <laughs> my kids love it, but I can't stand it. Anyhow, uh, that's it. We're out of time today. So as you know, the music that you're hearing is provided by Cliff Truesdale. And our voiceover is Chuck Smith. And Cole Williams helps me out with some social media and audio support. And I want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. I deeply appreciate it. Have a great holiday. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 